Well, the story of Isaac's two sons, Jacob and Esau, is a story that puts the responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God on full display. It's a story of choices, and it's a story of grace. It's also a story of contrasts, and those contrasts fly in the face of the prosperity and health and wealth gospel. As we'll see in a few minutes, if we used the standard of material blessings to assess the spiritual standing of the two brothers, we would obviously judge Esau to be the son God chose and Jacob to be the son God rejected. But the reality, the reality was, it was just the opposite. Jacob was the one through whom God chose to fulfill His promise, and Esau was the one whom God chose to pass by. Actually, to use God's own words from Malachi 1 that Paul quotes in Romans 9, Jacob was the one God loved. Esau was the one that God hated. But while their choices and their destinies and their legacies were vastly different from one another, God's sovereign grace was put on display in both men. God's salvific grace was evident in Jacob, and God's common grace was evident in Esau. And the ultimate lesson we learn is that God's grace is greater than all our sin. Our outline is in its normal place. It's very simple. I want us to look at the life of Jacob. Then I want us to look at the life of Esau. And then I want us to look at the grace of God. And by the way, that grace of God, as we will see, gives hope for for those in the line of both brothers. I want you to file that away. Children, you'll find your words that you're listening for in their normal place as well. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we go any further. Uh, Father, I ask for your spirit to make the reading and preaching of your word an effectual means of enlightening and convincing and humbling us, of driving us out of ourselves and drawing us to Christ, of conforming us to the image of Christ and subduing us to his will, of strengthening us against temptations and corruptions, of building us up in grace, and establishing our hearts in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. I pray, as always, that you would fill me with your Spirit and grant me grace that I might do uh, as you see fit. Use me as you see fit. I desire to do something good for you and for your church this evening, and I can only do that with your help. So I ask that to be so. And I pray these things for the sake of Christ and His church. Amen. So let's look first at the life of Jacob, which of course was a roller coaster to say the least. We've seen him uh, scheme his way into receiving his father's blessing. Uh, We've seen him be schemed um, and uh, schemed into working for 14 plus years for his wife. And then an extra six for all the possessions that he had. We've seen him wrestle with God and prevail. And then we've seen him limp because he has been, or his hip had been impaired. We've seen him conspire. And we've seen him act in faith. We've seen him use his head. And we've seen him fall prey to his emotions. 
We've seen him be strong. We've seen him be very weak. We've seen him strive and we've seen him be idle. We've seen him exert wisdom and strength. And then we've seen him flounder. We've seen him uh, confident and we've seen him fearful. In the end, as I mentioned last week, we've seen his faith and we've seen his commitment, but then we've also seen his disobedience. And we pick up tonight... After he had stopped short of fulfilling the promise that he had made to God before he left for Padan Aram, after he was graciously redirected by God, and after he had once again been reminded of the promises that God had made to him, which had brought him to a point, if you remember last week, it brought him to the point of repentance, obedience, and worship. And the natural expectation, or I guess the expectation would be, again, according to the health and wealth gospel, is that we would expect from this point forward for everything to be really good for Jacob. Things would be, go really well for his family. We might expect all to be well, but the reality was it wasn't. The bad news was he still lived in a world that was marred by sin, sorrow, and death. In verse 8 of our text last week, Deborah, the servant of his uh, mother, Rebecca, had died. And she had been with the family for a very long time and had probably even moved into a position of surrogate mother for Jacob. And so when Deborah died, Jacob probably not only grieved her death, but then also probably had to experience the grief of his mother's death all over again. But she wouldn't be the only one that Jacob would lose. Well, on the way from Bethel to Bethlehem, his wife Rachel went into labor. But what had been, or what should, what had been, and what should have been a time of great rejoicing turned into a time of mourning. Because verse 19 tells us she died after very hard labor. And if you remember, back in chapter 30, Rachel wanted children so bad that she had said, give me children or I shall die. And then when she actually had a child, when she gave birth to her first, she named him Joseph, which meant, may the Lord add to me another. Little did she know that having a second child would cost her her life and she would not raise either one. But Jacob grieved with hope. And we see that in two ways. First in verse 18, it says he renamed the child Benjamin. And it was a name of favor. It was a name of good fortune. It was a name of strength. It was a name of preeminence. And we'll see the effects of that as as we move through the latter chapters of Genesis. And second in verse 20, Moses says that he set up a pillar He set up a pillar at a tomb, which was something that he had only done when he had met with the Lord in Bethel. And Moses said that pillar was still there for Jacob's descendants to see over 400 plus years later. In the words of Richard Phillips, its message was the same as Psalm 116.15, what it declares for all of God's people, and that is this, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. Well, sorry to say, beginning in verse 21, things go from bad to worse. 
After they arrive in Eder, Jacob had to deal with the shame of his oldest son's sin or sexual sin against his wife's servant, Bilhah. And many believe that this was more than just simply a crime of passion. This was a calculated move. It was meant to dishonor Bilhah and leave her disgraced and defiled for two purposes. One was to move his own mother up the pecking order of wife and, or or move them, move her up, move Leah up the wife and concubine pecking order to a place of prominence and to solidify him as the oldest son who was to receive the blessing. It was also, it's also seen as a, a despicable way of disrespecting his father by usurping authority and seizing position that, by the way, is going to happen several times in the same way in the lives and reigns of kings of Israel. But Reuben's sin did not deliver what he anticipated or what he wanted While the twelve sons or tribes listed in verses 23 to 26 were now complete, he was the third of the three oldest to forfeit his birthright, to disqualify himself from the birthright. And as we'll see in Genesis 49, Jacob will bless and prophesy over Judah, not him. It will be through Judah that the promise will be fulfilled through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it will also be Joseph who will point to him. It will be Joseph who points to him as he's exalted to the right hand of power in Egypt. And as he is made fruitful in the land of his affliction. And as he blesses all the families of the earth. And that brings us to the last of the four sorrowful events that conclude Jacob's life or Jacob's story. Which began in chapter 25, and the event is the death of his father, Isaac. And there are two important things that we need to note about his death, and both are found in verse 29. First, Isaac was gathered to his people. Isaac would commune with the saints that had come before him, and he would wait on those who would follow. And beloved, that's good news for all of us. In the words of Donald Gray Barnhouse, heaven is a place of reunion. Beyond all question, the Word of God teaches that we shall know our loved ones in heaven, in joy and in fellowship. Again, that is good news. And second, the relationship, notice the relationship, how the relationship had changed between Jacob and Esau from the point that Esau had threatened to kill Jacob. Now they're together. They're burying their father together. They stood side by side as they buried their father, who had not only lived a long time, but had lived a full life as well. But Jacob's story doesn't end there. We have to look at verse 1 of chapter 37. It's the end of the Toledot there. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of of Canaan. So despite his sin, despite his poor choices, despite the sorrows that he had and was experiencing, he continued to believe and trust in the Lord. 
He continued to believe and rest in the promises of God. And the unfailing grace of God was fuel for his faith as he journeyed and he brought his family back into the land of promise. So what do we take away from the life of Jacob? There are many, as is always the case, but I've just chosen one to consider. You've heard me say this, and some of you have heard me say it a lot, and and that is that most of us in this room are not being called to be a world changer. Most of us in this room are not being called to do something great or epic for God. What we are being called to is to live a life worthy of our calling that includes walking by faith. And walking by faith simply means believing in and resting in the promises of God. It means trusting the Lord to provide the grace that we need to keep moving forward after we've sinned. It means trusting in the fact that God desires to, is willing to, and can and will forgive us if we desire to, are willing to, and actually do repent. It means continuing to move forward even though our pace is slowed by grief and sorrow. It means overcoming the obstacles that we encounter along the way. And it means getting up after we fall and trying again after we fail. Brothers and sisters, it means that we may have and do have a lot of problems. We may make and do make a lot of mistakes. We may sin and we may sin in some really big ways. But if we're walking by faith... We always come back to, we always walk to Jesus. We always walk to Jesus. At the end of our lives, our goal should be for our epitaphs to read, He lived by faith. She lived a life of faith. And the questions that we should ask aren't, how can I change the world? They aren't how... Or what great thing can I do for God? The questions we should ask are, how can I be faithful and obedient in the little things day after day after day? And how can I, even with all my shortcomings, even with all my sin, how can I pass on a legacy of faith in Jesus? So that's Jacob's life. What about Esau's life? We've seen him sell his birthright for a bowl of stew. We've seen him beg for his father's blessing. We've seen him vow to kill his brother. We've seen him take Hittite or Canaanite wives as well as wives from the family of Ishmael. Decisions, by the way, that distressed his family. And now we're told that like Lot, he left Canaan. 
Look at verses 6 to 8, uh, verses 6 to 8 again of chapter 36. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, all his property that he acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock, so Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. He was a man, unfortunately, who was more than indifferent to spiritual things. He was hard-hearted toward them. His passion was for physical pleasure and for worldly material wealth. He wanted a name for himself. He wanted a lot of children and possessions and, and power. He wanted temporal blessings rather than spiritual blessings. And the rest of chapter 36 tells us that he got exactly what he wanted. During the years, Jacob, remember, Jacob was struggling. Right? Struggling. And during those same years, Moses said, Esau took possession of, of the land of Seir. And he became a great nation. And Moses drives that point across. And you can see this in verses 1, 8, 19. And then in the end, I believe in somewhere around 43 or, or, or before. But he says four times that Esau was Edom. He also says that he was the father of the Edomites. So he's driving that point home. He is a great nation. And not only did he have children by the wives he brought with him from Canaan, but we read in, in chapter 36 that he and his children began to intermarry with the people of Seir. And his children grew up, grew up to be chiefs of clans. Unfortunately, again in the words of Richard Phillips, chapter 36 not only chronicles Esau's abundance of offspring and expansive power and territorial possessions, it also exhibits a declining spiritual state that would ultimately end in judgment. And he says that because if you go through chapters 36 and you'll notice and you, and you do and you look at the, the names of the 81 different people, only two of those of the 81 referred to relate to God in any way. Most of the names are, are very worldly. And the two names of those who, uh, who refer to God were actually uh, sons born back in Canaan, not in Seir. And at the end of the passage, we're told that one of the king's names um, actually meant Baal is gracious. So this legacy of spiritual indifference and hard-heartedness over time deteriorated to the point that Edom would become and did become an enemy of Israel. So much of an enemy that Edom would refuse Israel passage through the land as they were fleeing Egypt. And not only that, later, when in captivity in Babylon, if an Israelite escaped Babylon, those in Edom would recapture them and take them back to Babylon. Men like Amalek, father of the Amalekites who were bitter enemies of Israel. Haman in the book of Esther who was a descendant of Agog, who was an Amalekite king, and, and of course King Herod and his sons, who were enemies of, of Jesus, were all descendants of Esau. So 
So we ask the question again, what do we take away from Esau's story? We only took one away from Jacob, we'll take two away from Esau. First is this, while while God sovereignly determines the ultimate destinies of individual people and of nations, we all continue to think and to choose and to act freely and are therefore without excuse and culpable for the choices that we make in the lives that we live. Yes, God, God set His love on Jacob, and He passed Esau by. But Esau, make no mistake, Esau chose to sell his birthright. Esau chose to take foreign wives. Esau chose to leave Canaan. In other words, Esau chose to remove himself from the covenant. So, brothers and sisters, we must be diligent. The lesson is we must remain diligent. We ourselves must remain tethered to our anchor, the anchor of our hope, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Our feet must remain firmly planted upon the rock of our salvation. If we are to withstand the onslaught of the vain philosophies of of our world and not be tossed around by every wind of doctrine and to not drift into the turbulence of the world that will absolutely make a shipwreck of our faith. What we believe matters. The choices that we make matter. How we live matters. In the words of the Apostle Peter, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through Him you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplant your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus, our our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Secondly, if God is faithful to keep His promises to the ungodly, how much more can He be counted upon to fulfill His promises to us who love Him and are called according to His purpose? 
You see, in verse 31 of chapter 36, it says, These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. So while Jacob was still a sojourner, Esau was established and thriving. While uh, Moses' original audience, the Israelites, were wandering in the wilderness, Edom had lands and kings. And today, too, we are still sojourners. Peter calls us sojourners and exiles. We're wandering in this world that's not our own. And I don't know about you, but I believe we see the wicked prosper every day. And we ask why. In light of that, listen to these words from James Boyce. If God blesses so abundantly those who are not chosen, what is the magnitude of His blessing for those who are chosen? And Bruce Waltke says this, if kings come from Esau's loins, how much more will Jesus Christ reign? Beloved, don't lose hope. Don't lose hope. Don't give up. Keep your eyes on the Lord Jesus. Look into His wonderful face. When the things of earth grow strangely dim, in the light of His, they they will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Again, in the words of Peter, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Amen. Well, that brings us to the last point, the grace, the grace of God. If you remember, there were two sons that would become two nations in Rebekah's womb. They both began as covenant children. The older Esau chose to forsake the covenant. He turned his back on the Lord. He chose to forget the promises. And in the words of James Boyce, if a man tries to forget God as Esau did, you would think that God would forget him. But that was not the case with Esau, he says. Esau spurned his birthright, and never once in his life did he show any true spiritual perception or interest, yet God did not forget him. Despite despite Esau's spiritual indifference, despite his hard-heartedness, despite his sin, despite his ultimate... um, Despite his unbelief, all those things that would ultimately lead to his judgment, he was a recipient of God's common grace. The sun rose and the rain fell on him, just just like it did Jacob. 
He received an abundance of earthly blessings in fulfillment of God's promise to his mother in verse 23 of chapter 25. And it appears he also seems to have been given far more than Isaac said he would or promised he would when he blessed him back in verses 39 and 40 of chapter 27. But that's not all. The genealogy in chapter 36 lets us know, in the words of Richard Phillips, that the Lord still knew the names of all Esau's offspring many generations later, and these people were not outside of His mercy. God did choose Jacob over Esau. And Paul did say that he did so before, there were e- before they were even born and had done nothing either good or bad in order, here's the reason, in order that his promise or purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. And what we tend to do is we tend to... Um, Focus our attention on the fact that God didn't choose Esau, but what we do is discuss whether or not that was fair. But what we forget is that one of the reasons God did so was to actually magnify His grace. What I mean is while God rejected Esau, I believe one of the reasons he did so was in order that God could include and fold back in some of Esau's descendants. We need to remember, God's promise to Abraham was that he would be um, a blessing, right, to all the families of the earth. We need to remember that Christ's commission was to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. We need to remember that John's vision in Revelation was of people from every tribe, nation, and tongue standing before the throne of grace. What that means is In each case, Edomites or Esau's descendants were included in that number. They're a part of the every and the all. That means that while those who continue in their sin, while those who continue in their spiritual indifference and hard-heartedness and unbelief, while they will in fact experience judgment and will be judged and found wanting, the truth remains, still, the truth still remains that whosoever will repent and believe in Christ will be saved. Even those whose past is a legacy of sin, spiritual indifference, hard-heartedness, and unbelief. Therefore, we must be ready. We must be ready and willing to share the gospel with anyone and everyone, no matter their background or their legacy. By grace, through faith, their legacy can be changed as well. God's grace is greater than all their sin. 
unlike his older brother, the younger son, Jacob, did remain in the covenant. Despite his sin, despite his poor choices, despite the sorrows he experienced, he continued to believe and trust in the Lord. He continued to believe and rest in the promises of God, and he brought his family back to the land of promise. And yet, he and his children were a mess. And that's an understatement. I don't need to rehash the stories we've heard to know that that's true. As a matter of fact, it's, it may be hard to believe that some of them are a part of God's holy people because of what they've done. But in Revelation 29, or 21, John tells us that all their names are inscribed on the gates of the eternal city. But again, God chose Jacob in order that God's purpose of election might continue. The only explanation for Jacob and his son's salvation is the grace of God in Christ, period. Ian Duguid puts it this way. He says, God's plan does not depend on his finding suitably willing and holy implements to employ. He is able to accomplish his purposes even with the most deeply flawed individuals. And beloved, that includes us. Deeply flawed individuals. So the question isn't, why not Esau? The question is, why Jacob? The question is, why me? The question is, why you? The question is, why us? Thanks be to God that His grace is greater than all our sin as well. Let's pray. Father, by Your Spirit and grace, would You enable us to receive the Word with faith and love, to lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. For Your glory, for our good, and for the sake of Christ and His church, I pray. Amen. Having heard the word preached.